Welcome once again to Tree Lady Talks. And as you loyal Tree Lady Talks listeners will know, I have heard a few things by a few people that I've been absolutely astromographied by. And today, Sharon is talking to someone who is basically a superhero. He's got a superhero name. He's forgotten more about carbon offsetting and carbon sequestration than I have ever or will ever know. And those facts alone means he needs a massive introduction. I can see a shape outside the studio doors. Got to give him a big build up because this is a massive, massive interview. I mean, when I say some interviews are technical, we haven't even started that conversation until you hear some of this. It's brilliant. His colleagues know him as Andrew Baker, but in superhero mode. I describe myself as the carbonator. And after these messages, we will be back. Hello, this is Tree Lady Talks, and I'm Sharon Durdent Hollenby. All music and production is by Noel Durdent Hollenby. And all views expressed by me or the interviewees are entirely personal. Welcome to Andrew Baker. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Andrew, tell us a little bit about yourself, your career so far. Sure. So I have recently joined the Woodland Carbon Code team, which is obviously governing the code, and it does that through Scottish Forestry, which is, as many of you all know, the devolved Forestry Commission in Scotland or the UK. And before that, I was working for Till Hill Forestry for six years. And um, the last year that I was there, I was working in their carbon store team. So essentially their carbon code team for Till Hill. And then before that, I was working as an environmental assistant at Nottinghamshire Police. And before oh. that, I was at uni. Yeah. So um, been a bit convoluted after uni. Obviously, I had a couple of years of knowing, not knowing anything that I wanted to do or anything like that. But once I got into forestry, that was it. There was no way I was ever going to leave. So the Woodland Carbon Code, everybody's talking about carbon credits now. Could you explain the basics for people who just simply don't know about this buzzword? I've recently listened to your last carbon offsetting podcast and Sean from ECOS summarised it fantastically when he talked about low hanging fruit and carbon emissions. So essentially, as we all know, we're in a climate crisis and carbon dioxide emissions are on the rise and continuing to increase. And so what we need to do is, as a society, bring our carbon emissions down. But even with all of the renewables in the world, even with all of the efficiencies, there are still going to be, for a time at least, residual carbon emissions that people are going to have to think about. Sean from Ecos came up with a great analogy of an apple tree. I think you like that too. Shall we take the listeners through that analogy? So essentially what Sean was describing was how as a fruit picker, as an apple picker, you have low hanging fruit and you have higher hanging fruit. Now, the low hanging fruit is the first thing to pick and it's the easiest, most cost effective thing for companies to do. And so essentially what that's saying is the first thing every company, every individual needs to do is to reduce their emissions down as much as they possibly can whether that's through public transport or efficiency in their home or changing their habits, their diets, etc. 
once you've done that and once you start to realize that to make any bigger changes or bigger changes would need to be made to make less of an impact that's when companies can start thinking about offsetting and so if they have changed their entire fleet to electric cars if they've reduced the emissions through the purchasing of renewable electricity etc etc and then they realize well to that residual 10% of carbon emissions that they really can't reduce down how are they going to absolve themselves of that in a way that is where carbon offsetting comes in so with the woodland carbon code itself one credit or one unit represents a sequestered ton of carbon dioxide equivalent now the equivalent refers to other global warming gases such as nitrous oxide and methane now once you purchase one of those units depending on which unit you buy which I'll come on to in a moment you can then offset those residual emissions so you can become carbon neutral if you go further and buy twice as many carbon units as you have total emissions then you can actually become carbon negative and so when people are buying your products they know that they are actively reducing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere by purchasing your products which i mean as a sales pitch is phenomenal it's is becoming increasingly important all this is based on the company or the organization having an understanding of their carbon footprint to start with so is that, are there companies and consultants that people go to to measure their carbon footprint for example have they got an old fridge what type of light bulbs are they using what is their supply chain like? Where are their staff working, et cetera, et cetera? Absolutely. So presumably that's hugely complex. Absolutely. And is that really is that first step. You need to measure your emissions initially and quantify what they are before you can start making positive changes. And what that helps to do is to quantify where those low-hanging fruits are to follow on with the same analogy. And so there are organizations like the Carbon Trust, Carbon Intelligence, a variety of private companies that do this. And they will essentially assess what your emissions are. And that's broken down into scope one, two, and three emissions generally. One and two are more direct emissions from your organization, whereas scope three are associated emissions in your supply chain. Now, what that means is you can make different decisions when you're governing your company as to how carbon neutral you want to be. So you'll find many organizations may want to become carbon neutral, but they're only actually talking about their scope one and two emissions. Mm -hmm. Scope three emissions are notoriously difficult to quantify and they're far larger generally. For, to give you an example, quite often local councils will declare their scope one and two emissions as the emissions associated with their, with their staff, their buildings, et cetera, et cetera and then they'll consider the wider constituency emissions as their scope three. And there's flexibility, and this oh. is my area all day, but you can see how those emissions will be enormous in comparison just to the emissions from their staff. At the moment, it's voluntary. Is that right? So there are two types of markets. There's the compulsory market and there's the voluntary market. Now, the UK emissions trading scheme was introduced just over a week ago, actually, and it essentially mirrors the EU emissions trading scheme. Now, essentially what that does is for heavily polluting industries such as steel production and that sort of thing, governments across the EU and now the UK specifically, they'll assign you credits where you are allowed to emit a certain amount of carbon dioxide from your mm -hmm. operation. 
Now, the amount of units that they'll assign to you will reduce generally over time, and that is to encourage organizations to reduce their emissions. Now, once they have been assigned those units, they have two choices. They can use all of them. If they exceed those units, they'll have to buy some from elsewhere. But if they bring their emissions down by enough, by a big enough difference, they'll be able to sell those excess units on and generate an income. So the more sustainable they are, the better, because they'll be able to not only benefit from the reduction in costs of their operations, but they'll also be able to benefit from the sale of those units. Now, the UK ETS, as I say, was released last week, launched last week. But again, this isn't my forte. But as far as I know, the average price per unit, so per ton of carbon dioxide, was over £50 per ton. And so that is quite dramatically influencing the market and the perspective of the direction the market is likely to go. So that's the compulsory side. And then looking at the voluntary market, which is where the Woodland Carbon Codes currently sit in, that's more for organizations who are looking to be able to brand themselves effectively and are environmentally conscious. So they want to be able to say, we are carbon neutral. We're doing it because there is a climate emergency. We want to do the right thing. We're not being driven into doing this at all. We want to do the right thing. Now, logically, these organizations aren't stupid and they know that there's potentially going to be a carbon tax in the future. The UK emissions trading scheme may expand out rather than just steel production, for instance, mm-hmm. into more different sectors. And so they're kind of future proofing themselves by buying these carbon units now so that in the future, if a scheme like that was to come in, then they've already got units that they'll be able to use. Now, that's the hope. As I say, the Wooden Carbon Code at the minute is just a voluntary scheme. But if that was to change and it became part of that compulsory market, then you can see where the value of units may increase quite dramatically. Excellent. So if I'm a business, well, I am actually, but if (laughs) if I was a big business and I wanted to buy carbon credits, first of all, I'd look at what I was doing now. I would try and reduce my carbon footprint with the, the, the low hanging fruit. I've dealt with that and things that are too difficult or too costly for me to do. I'm going to buy some carbon credits. Yeah. Where do I go to buy some carbon credits? Very good question. So at the moment, there are a lot of different places you can go. First of all, you can get to the Woodland Carbon Code, which is where I work. And those units are UK based and can only be used against UK based emissions. Um, And so if you're a global company and you have UK offices, you can use these carbon credits to offset against your UK based emissions only. Now, the, there are a variety of other standards, gold standard, the ECS standard, verified carbon standard, and many others, all of which have their own selling points, really. Some focus more on solar power in developing countries. Some focus on hydroelectric or red projects, reduction in emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. Those mm-hmm. projects focus on protecting areas of rainforest and that sort of thing, whereas the Woodland Carbon Code is focused only on woodland creation in the UK. So that's quite a fundamental part of it. I'll come to that in a moment, but another code to mention is, of course, the Peatland Carbon Code in the UK. And it may be worth just explaining slightly how they differ. I mean, there are obviously some administrative differences, but essentially with woodland carbon units, what you're doing is you're sequestering. So you're sucking in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere through photosynthesis. Yes. Sorry. Well, let's pause there because for those who don't know, because we have a broad audience, 
How does it work? What's the simple science behind it? Absolutely. What's so great about trees? <laughs> could be a where, do we, where do we begin? Hit the subscribe button to guarantee you don't miss an episode and you can follow us on Twitter at the Tree Lady 67 Instagram Tree Lady Talks Facebook Sharon Hosgood Associates or send an email to noel at treeladytalks.co.uk what, what are trees doing to sequester carbon? They provide a myriad of different benefits and depending on the species, on the location, they can provide a variety of different types of benefits to a different magnitude. But with regards to carbon and global warming mitigation, the main thing they do is they sequester carbon dioxide. Now what that means is when trees are growing, they are photosynthesizing very quickly and that means that they are sucking in carbon dioxide to basically produce sugars for their for their growth, for energy and as they grow they put that carbon dioxide on as mass as timber and so 50 percent of the dry weight of trees is generally pure carbon and so if you had a ton a, a tree that was a ton 50, very generally 50 percent of that tree would be water and then 50 percent of that dry weight would be carbon and so when you look at a ton of carbon dioxide which is nearly a ton of carbon dioxide is nearly four times the weight of carbon Mm-hmm. You're looking at a ton tree would sequester about a ton of carbon dioxide over its entire lifetime. Oh, that's really simple. I love that. <laughs> and different species sequester carbon better than others, don't they? Absolutely. They do it at different rates. They can hold on to it for longer. For example, silver birch generally it won't live much longer than 70, 80 years before it falls down and starts to decompose. And that is something that a lot of people don't appreciate as well, that when trees are decomposing, they emit nearly 85% of the carbon back into the atmosphere through microbial respiration. And as trees reach their apex size, so that ton tree I mentioned before, once they reach that size, they respire at the same rate as they photosynthesize. So when they're bringing in carbon dioxide and turning that carbon dioxide into oxygen and energy or oxygen and sugar, sorry, when they respire, they turn that sugar into and sugar and oxygen into energy and carbon dioxide. So it's essentially the reverse of the process. Once they reach that apex size, the carbon balance is essentially the same. And so once it's the growing trees that are really sequestering the carbon, Ancient woodlands and existing woodlands act as phenomenal stores of carbon. So they hold a great amount of carbon, but they don't actively sequester much at all. And that's a common misconception. When you hear anybody talking about the Amazon, for instance, being the lungs of the earth, that implies that they're breathing in carbon dioxide and exhaling oxygen. Well, they do do that, but they also breathe in oxygen and exhale carbon dioxide just like That's really interesting. And on a micro scale, I've been involved with doing some iTree studies or commissioned some iTree studies on um, housing estates in London. And you can see the curve there that the the newly planted and the younger trees are sequestering a lot of carbon and they get to about sort of 40 years and that starts to tail off, particularly in urban environments. And there is a, a difference between species. So it's absolutely fascinating. And you say that the common... Con- Uh, conception is trees they take all the carbon dioxide but actually as you say once they mature it's in balance but of course you know carbon storage is really really important 
and we need to use more felled mature trees in our construction industry and for other uses as well within the UK. But that's a whole nother subject. She's a lady, she's a lady, she's a lady who can help you with a problem with trees. Okay, so who's your favourite superhero? Mine is Funny Voice Robot Man. Who's yours? David Attenborough. Okay. You're gonna find it on the tree talk. Imagine I'm a landowner and I'm listening to all the talk about carbon credits and think I'm, I could make some money here. Um, what incentives are there for, say, a, a an arable farmer to convert some of that land to woodland? So there are a variety of different grant schemes depending on the country you're in, depending on the route that you go down. But generally these can provide, depending on the species you plant and the type of woodland creation you're looking for, 80% or even more of your standard costs. And so that are the, those are the costs for establishment, maintenance of the trees for up to 10, 12 years or so. Once you reach that point, most woodlands generally are self-sustaining. They don't need a great amount of maintenance because they've already outcompeted all the weeds. They've already become well-established. They don't generally need irrigation because they are very good stores of water as well, which is obviously why one of the reasons why they're fantastic at flood mitigation. So there are a variety of grant schemes out there to start with. And then the Woodland Carbon Code is UK wide. So if you're looking at woodland creation in any part of the UK, you can generate carbon credits. And that is the entire purpose of the Woodland Carbon Code. It depends obviously on a variety of factors, but essentially those credits can then be sold privately to companies that are looking to become carbon neutral like I described before. Now you can go through a variety of different routes to sell your carbon units, but if you're looking at potentially selling in the future, you're not quite sure how to sell them, that doesn't matter. Generate this commodity now, which is essentially what all those carbon units are. And then as I described before, with prices ranging at the moment between 10 to 25 pounds per ton or so, depending on a variety of factors I'm happy to come on to in a moment, you can look at generating anywhere between 100 to 500 units per hectare. So even if you're looking at selling 100 units at £10 a tonne, that's £1,000 that you wouldn't have had before. And then if you're looking at the upper end of the scale, you can see how quite dramatically you're, or quite quickly, you're looking at the closer to £10,000, £15,000 per hectare of woodland creation, which can be on top of those lucrative grants already. Also, what might be happening is <clears throat> biodiversity net gain for development is another way that um, the new England Tree <clears throat> Action Plan, so many talking about England here, there's another financial income there as well, potentially, with developers looking to offset some biodiversity net gain. Are there any controls for ensuring that the woodland that's being planted has biodiversity value? It isn't just a monoculture of say Sitka spruce, which is good at sequestering carbon. Absolutely. Now, all woodlands in the UK that are planted and want to register with the Woodland Carbon Code must adhere to the UK forestry standard, one of the most robust standards internationally, as many of you will know. Now, this ensures that the woodland you create will not negatively impact biodiversity, water, communities, etc. So based on that alone, you've got some huge safeguards already in place. 
Now, in the, moving further on away from the controls that are in place to prevent that happening, to prevent biodiversity being pushed aside and just focusing on carbon, what we accommodate for in the Woodland Carbon Code is there's something called a Woodland Benefits Tool, which allows you to then show that not only is my woodland fantastic at sequestering carbon, but these units I'm generating can also provide fantastic benefits to biodiversity, to flood mitigation, to the local community, to the local economy, because that is something that's quite often forgotten about when people talk about sustainable woodland. It's important for it to be sustainable, not only environmentally, but also economically and socially. And I've always talked about it as the, or always been told about it as the three-legged stool of sustainability. It has to be social, economic, and environmental. And this is something that Sean, in your recent podcast, touched on as well, in terms of farmers and the amount of employment that some of these native woodlands can provide is can be quite limited, which is one of the major benefits of woodlands with some form of management, thinning, clear felling, even if it's a portion of the woodland. So there are a variety of different ways of looking at how a scheme is sustainable and how a credit is sustainable. And everyone will have different opinions as to what is reasonable. Some people want to say no, absolutely no intervention, only native broadleaves because they provide the best biodiversity benefit, for instance. And then at the other end of the scale, you'll have people saying no, Sitka spruce monocultures are the best because they provide the most hardwood, the most softwood timber for construction and for locking up carbon for generations to come. Everyone will fall somewhere between that, between those two extremes. And the Woodland Carbon Code hopefully accommodates both because what we do is we can assign credits to a variety of different woodland creation schemes so long as they adhere to UKFS. And what we are hoping is that the influence of the Woodland Carbon Code will have will actually encourage more mixed woodlands. So rather than it having to be one or the other, you'll say, OK, well, at the minute to make your scheme economically viable, you need 70% Sitka spruce to make it just um, to make ends meet, just to make ends meet. Whereas if you, and a lot of people when they're planting these uh, investment type woodlands, they look at the mixed broadleaf element as essentially wasted ground because there's not much they can really do with it. There's no real economic gain. Whereas what we're saying is no, it's providing a huge amount of social benefits that we are essentially going to reward you for now expand that out a little bit so you don't need to be constantly pushing for maximizing sitka you can drop that down a bit keep the sitka to the better areas for sitka production and then keep the broad leaves at the better areas for broadleaf um, production and for riparian areas next to rivers and that sort of thing so that will hopefully over time encourage a more mixed woodland design I wonder also if it might encourage better woodland management of those planted woodlands. I'm just thinking, if trees sequester carbon more when they're growing faster, what about bringing back coppicing of, say, 15-year-old stock of hornbeam, um, filled maple and hazel? Presumably that would sequester carbon quicker than if it was just left to mature. Might it be an opportunity for increasing biodiversity by the different light levels and also perhaps use of community volunteers or, or employment? Is that something that's being considered? Absolutely. And harvested wood products are a topic we should probably touch on in a moment as well. 
I'm based down in the southeast at the moment, southeast of England, and sweet chestnut coppicing is still alive and well in this part of the country. Now, the difficulty with coppicing at times, and you'd probably know more about this than me, Sharon, is that it's generally done motor manually. So it's generally, it, it can't really effectively use machinery to do it because of the effect that may have on the root system itself and it may make it become unstable this is very very generalized but it may make the root system less stable and so the potential for the next rotation of coppice to go on is hindered however i love sweet chestnut i think it's a phenomenal tree and when you see some seven eight year old sweet chestnut and you see that it's grown three times more quickly than thicker spruce you think why is everyone not planting this why is this not everywhere why are there not monocultures of sweet chestnut now obviously there are certain short rotation coppice trees and there are a variety i won't go in depth into the sweet chestnut side of things but there are certainly movements into the faster growing biodiversity with by those associated biodiversity those associated biodiversity benefit trees that could be included in the code moving forwards more fairly some people would say now others would say well once you've cut down that sweet chestnut yeah you've got the timber but the you've cut down that tree it, what if that timber was burnt that carbon has just gone straight back into the atmosphere how can you say you are sequestering more carbon than just leaving it as it is i'm just wondering if in year 15 or year 20 um if it's on its second round of coppice um, that the, the growth from that coppice store might be growing much faster than a 25-year-old sweet chestnut that had been left. And also, I mean, I'm going slightly off tag, but of course it's related like the three-legged stool you just talked about. But we used to use our coppice poles locally for a whole host of things, which now are used, created by plastic garden implements at the simplest level, broom handles, you know, thatching spars, not plastic. But um, the fact is, if we could sort of think about bring back coppicing of new woodland and use that wood locally, employ more people. No, that's a really interesting point. And I know that there are some phenomenal uses of cellulose and wood products moving forwards and again this isn't my area of expertise but just hearing about some of the glue lamb and some of the innovative uses of wood that people are looking at essentially you are producing a sustainable resource moving forwards the difficulty when it comes to carbon is that permanence issue well if you cut a tree down and you were to store that carbon in a fence post for 20 years well by the time it's grown to 15 years old by the time you've put it into the fence and it's been there for 20 is 35 years really long enough for that to be classed as a carbon unit? A lot of people would argue not. The international standard generally is 100 years. If it's kept out of the atmosphere for 100 years, then you can be classed as permanent. However, you can see how a lot of people don't agree with that because they say, well, surely the climate emergency is hitting us now. We need the fastest growing trees for the next 15, 20 years until technology may catch up and help us even more so. But until that point, we are relying on natural solutions. We need to plant the fastest growing trees now and store as much of that carbon in those material, in, in those products. And essentially, there's two types of things where you're looking at when they're coming on to harvest of wood products. And so essentially, the major argument for harvestable products being included within the carbon code which it currently isn't so the carbon code only accounts for carbon that is stored within the woodland gate shall we say so that accommodates the soil carbon and the timber of the tree 
we're expanding it more as much as we can to try and include more of the root system and the foliage. But you can imagine how much more difficult it is to quantify the amount of carbon in the roots than it is to quantify the amount of carbon in the standing tree. But essentially, we only accommodate or assign units to wooden creators based on the in-forest carbon. But this is where a lot of commercial foresters are saying that's not fair. Harvested wood products are not only holding carbon themselves and acting as that carbon stock within a building, within a product, the material substitution benefit is far higher than that. You've already mentioned plastic. Plastic, steel, concrete are orders of magnitude more carbon emitting at times than timber. That is where the carbon savings are really made. Should that be included in the carbon code? If so, how do we do that? If we're planting Sitka spruce now in 35 years time, who knows what it's going to be used for? Should it be the landowner who plants the trees that benefits from that credit? Or should it be the builder at the end who decides to use timber rather than concrete because they're trying to be environmentally conscious? You can see the Pandora's box that I'm beginning to open, <laughs> how difficult it becomes. It does become really difficult, also really exciting. And um, looking at it from my own experience at a tiny scale, looking at development sites and, in, and encouraging use of the timber from trees which might need to be felled, you know, keep the best trees, you might need to fell some. Um, and I've been talking about keeping that timber on site, even if it's for play or even if it's chipped for mulch at the worst sort of level. Um, but on a macro scale, it's hugely complex. But if we make things too complicated, people are going to just be put off, aren't they? So that there needs to be a sort of simple approach. And I've looked at the website and it's very detailed, but very logical. Tell us about how people say the average landowner wants to do this. Do they need an expert to help them? And how can they find one? No, they don't. I would suggest they speak to a project developer anyway. The woodland creation is an art form and having someone who has years of experience to help you design your woodland, to help you through the grant scheme, completely aside from the carbon code, is invaluable. It really is. And foresters are really worth their weight in gold in that sense. Now, you can go it alone. And if you have some experience in that arena, crack on. That's absolutely fine. You are more than welcome to come to us at the Woodland Carbon Code, not going through a project developer and doing it yourself. That's absolutely fine. What I found is most useful from a project developer side, there are two things really. First of all, is they have the ability to group projects effectively. So when you register a project as an individual project, you can do it any size you like. That can be 0.1 of a hectare up to 1,000 hectares if you wanted to your costs to the validators who continually monitor the growth of your woodlands over the entire project duration, which can be up to 100 years, you will have to pay them for them to verify and validate your your woodland scheme over time. Now, those costs are negligible when you can pick if, if you are talking about a thousand hectare scheme. For a one hectare scheme where you're likely to only make potentially a couple of thousand pounds from from the carbon credits themselves the cost of validation verification can become far more significant so it pays it pays to be yeah, big absolutely basically the bigger it's the old adage money breeds money 
So the more land you've got, the more resources you can chuck at it, the higher profit you will make. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's completely understandable. I would hope that the scheme would encourage lots of small biodiverse woodlands as part of this. Now, I'm glad you've mentioned that, Sharon, because that's exactly what we hope to do and what we're hoping, what we do at the moment with the grouping of schemes allows for that. So even if you're a group of many smaller landowners, you've got half a hectare here, half a hectare there, you're a local council, you're a university, and you don't have that 100,000 hectare scheme to be able to benefit from all those economies of scale, not only from the carbon code validation process and verification process, but also from the planting itself, you can group those schemes together as smaller individual landowners. And when you do that, the cost for verification drop dramatically. So whereas the cost of the validator at the moment may be as high as £1,500 for a validation of your scheme. So that's the process essentially is you register your scheme for free. And that's essentially an expression of interest. You say, this is my basic um, planting design. And this is what I'd like to do. This is the amount of carbon I'm likely to sequester. You then plant your scheme and then you validate your scheme. At year five, you then verify it. And every 10 years, you continue to verify it for the duration of the project. And essentially, those verifications are to ensure permanence. We want to make sure that you are managing the woodland, as you said you would, that you are sequestering the amount of carbon that you said you would. And more than likely, you're going to be sequestering more carbon because we're very conservative in our initial calculations. And so the amount of carbon you sequester each verification is likely to be higher. But if you said, again, as a small landowner, after you've planted, you're also going to be hit with a £1,500 bill to validate the project. And then the cost of verification can be as high as £1,000 each time. It's likely to be reducing down moving forwards with advancing technology, remote sensing, etc., but as a worst case scenario, if you're paying £1,000 every 10 years, it might not sound like an enormous amount, but it's significant to smaller landowners. If you instead group up to 50 hectares of standard project, uh, of small projects, sorry, um, up to 50 hectares of small projects together, and a small project is anything less than five hectares, plus 15 standard projects, which can be any size, so you could go to that £1,000 per hectare person and say, can I bring my 0.5 hectare and put it in a group with you? Maybe they won't want to, but that is where primarily the first and most effective use of project developers can be. The bigger the project developer, the more effectively they can group those together. Now, if you know a variety of other small landowners, go it alone, go it together and pull all of those together. If you're lucky enough to know up to 50 hectares of other people and 15 standard people. That makes it so much fairer. I'm glad I asked that question then. What sort of uptake are you finding um, in this scheme? Is there a massive increase in the last year with people being more aware? The code has been running since 2011 formally, and so we've just had our 10-year birthday. And over that period, we have registered 30,000 hectares worth of wooden creation. Now, the number of projects that have been registered in the last year matches the amount of projects that were registered in the previous nine years. And so the amount of people over the last year and moving forwards registering and validating their projects is increasing exponentially, more than exponentially. So my job at the minute is almost, into, it was meant to be just a portion of my job is managing these registrations. Most of my time, Sharon, is now just seeing all of these projects flooding in. 
Um, we do have a new deadline, which may be changing or encouraging people to register as quickly as they can. And that is July 1st. So up until July 1st, you can register any woodland that started its planting, which is known as the implementation date, from up to two years ago. So if you started planting mid-June uh, mid 2019, you could technically register your project with the carbon code and say, we were wanting to register with the carbon code before, we can prove it through these cash flows, through these email trails, et cetera, et cetera. We, we didn't realize that we'd have such a time scale. We want to register. Can we do that now? Yes, you'd be absolutely fine. If that was from 2018, you'd miss the boat. I'm sorry, you can't register anymore. As of July 1st, all woodland creation projects that want to join the Woodland Carbon Code must register before planting begins. And so that is an important deadline. So if people take nothing away from this podcast other than this, that is it. Are you noticing any trends in the type of applications you're getting? There are far more diverse schemes coming forward now, whereas over the last nine years, the first nine years, the vast majority of the schemes, over 90%, were entirely mixed broadleaf, non-intervention woodlands. Now we're seeing far more commercial schemes. And when I say commercial, I don't just mean timber production, because many mixed broadleaf schemes can seriously be considered commercial when you consider, you touched on it earlier, Sharon, the biodiversity credits, nitrate credits, other sources of philanthropic funding that you may get from investors that just want to do the right thing. For instance, there are some big charities that have a lot of legacy payments and they have a lot of their payments paid up front that commercial schemes wouldn't have access to. So a lot more commercial schemes are looking at the Woodland Carbon Code now as a viable source of income. The intention of the Woodland Carbon Code, its vision, if you like, is as a facilitation mechanism to allow for woodlands that would not have been planted without carbon finance, and so the sale of those carbon units, it allows those to be planted because of the sale of carbon units. And so this is touching on something called additionality, which is a very contentious issue. But essentially what we are asking is, if we weren't providing you with carbon units to sell, would you have planted the woodland anyway? Now you can imagine how difficult a decision or difficult that can be to prove one way or another. Someone could just say, no, I wasn't going to plant it, even though they knew full well they were going to plant it. And as I say, this isn't just timber related schemes. This can be any type of commercial scheme. And so what we do is we put the woodland through a variety of tests. Test one is the legal test. Do you have a legal obligation to plant that land? And this accounts for restocking. If you've clear-felled a woodland that you need to restock, that isn't additional because you are legally required to do that under the UKFS. Secondly, look at something like compensatory planting. If I built a road and cut through some woodlands and I have to plant equivalent amount of woodland elsewhere, that new woodland is not it's not additional because you are legally bound to plant it. And then the second most important test, there are a couple of others, but the second most important test is the investment test, which is where we're essentially comparing a land, the land use as it is. And so if you're a sheep farmer, for instance, generating £100 per hectare per year from sheep farming, and that can come from grants and from the sale of the lamb, et cetera, et cetera, in comparison to a woodland creation scheme. Now, if we can see that that woodland creation scheme, you're making money hand over fist or are likely to from the timber sales in the future, there's no way, why on earth would you not plant that scheme 
then we wouldn't assign it carbon units. However, if it wasn't going to be making as much money as the existing land use, then we could potentially assign carbon units. And so it is a bit of a tricky topic, and I definitely recommend looking more on our website for that explanation. Can I just run a few examples by you then? So you'll give carbon credits if somebody is demonstrating that they wouldn't make as much money if they had the land use before. So if I was um, a very wealthy wheat farmer in Essex and I thought, I'm going to plant some wooden for carbon, um, I would have been earning on a good year, a good harvest, you know, a good income, but my, uh, my, my carbon credits will be less. So, so you would give carbon credits in that basis because you recognize the sacrifice that the landowner is making in terms of cash flow. Sure. So it wouldn't be that their carbon credits would be less. It'd be that their woodland creation scheme would make less money than the wheat crop. So essentially, we'd be comparing their current land use, let's say an arable wheat farmer. So what we do is we look at the net present value. Right now, how much is that land use worth? So let's say for that wheat example, you were going to be making £500 per hectare per year. We could say, okay, well, with forestry averaged out, without carbon, you would be making £400 of £400 per hectare per year. Well, then that is additional because why economically, if you had £500 and £400 per year, you choose the 500 So what we're saying is, okay, well, we'll give you some carbon units to push that to £600 per hectare per year, which unlocks the ability for that landowner economically to plant those trees. Now, will it ever compete with wheat farming? I doubt it. I mean, you know better than me about the uh, arable production and that sort of thing. But more often than not, we're looking at land that is generally for farmers not making a lot of money anyway. So you'd be looking at those riparian areas next to rivers. You'd be looking at those fields that have never produced a fantastic yield. They're, They're becoming far smarter when it comes to precision farming when they look at exactly which field is producing how much year on year, which is less productive, etc. So what I'd suggest is have a look at those less productive areas and consider wooden creation as an option. Coming back to the point you have the environmental checks. Another example might be a farmer in the Lake District who is a sheep farmer and maybe they've been struggling. It's a small farm. They've been struggling financially and that they, they they feel reluctant to let the farm go, but clearly planting Sitka, Sitka spruce, um, a commercial crop on there, is likely to be more financially advantageous. And particularly if they've got a small farm, if they grouped with other similar farmers doing the same thing. But you've got the environmental checks um, to, to make sure that the economic benefit of doing that, and of course the carbon benefit of doing that, is not harmful to the um to say the character of the landscape using the using the uh, lake just as an example so it's an incredibly multifaceted approach there have been some fears expressed that um the vast waves of monoculture or sicker spruce could could change the landscape and change the ecosystems in a detrimental way in the name of a single bullet which is carbon sequestration But what you've really reassured me that in the UK, these things are so regulated that 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 is not a concern. That's really good news. 
And on the back of that, just looking at the Sitka spruce plantation and the monoculture, I really hope that the carbon code can act against that in, in a positive way. I'm a commercial forester at heart, I believe, because I love timber and the carbon sequestration in their harvested wood products and their materials substitution, as we mentioned before. But I do, I'm very aware that pests and diseases, climate change are a major issue if Sitka was to find was to be exposed to a new phytophthora, for instance, then we would be in real trouble. So more diverse conifers, more diverse woodlands benefits all, benefit all of us. And the introduction of carbon credits for woodland creation actually encourages people away from that 100% or 70% Sitka spruce because it allows for those that other 30% or 20% excluding open ground you're actually making some money from that. So why not expand that slightly? So I'm really hopeful that even the commercial schemes, they'll be able to consider, well, actually, let's bring that down. And also, if they don't, well, we're not going to give them carbon credits anyway because they're making too much money from the Sitka spruce plantation as it is. Oh, so there's another safety check there. Absolutely. There's a financial test. We've seen in the pandemic how people are flocking to the urban fringe woodlands. Or, and, and including newly planted woodlands, because it only takes about 10 years. For, I mean, I planted loads of woodlands um, about 30 years ago. And you go back within 10 years, it becomes a destination. People are walking through it. And so I think that that is a driver as well. Well, one thing as well with carbon credits is, is as well is looking at, we've talked about commercial returns from timber and talking about a sheep farmer in the Lake District. Can they really afford to wait 35 years, 40 years for a clear fell for the huge amount of money they may be able to make from that? Can they afford to do that? Or are they going to be cash flow very poor for the next 35 years until then? So essentially, they wouldn't be able to afford to do it unless they sold their land. That's not what we're wanting to do. The Carbon Code hopefully encourages these landowners to say, well, you don't have to. How about plant some of your land with trees, sicker or otherwise, generate some carbon units, which can be sold at any time in any quantity. So if I was a landowner and I generated a thousand carbon units and I was hoping to sell those for 20 pounds per ton, for instance, I could sell 200 of those up front and just say, right, I'm just going to sell them now just to get a bit of money in and just help me through the next year or so. That'd be a very cheap year at 4,000 pounds, but even so, that's the sort of thing that you can do. And then every year, if you wanted to sell, and also what investors are looking into is more innovative ways of investing in these woodlands. And so I know Sean touched on this in your last podcast as well, in terms of different payment structures. So rather than saying, well, I'm going to give you £10, £15 per tonne today, that's it, I have all of your carbon. What they're saying instead is, right, okay, well, how about I give you £200 per hectare per year for the next 20 years? and I get all of your carbon rights from that. That is something that appeals to farmers far more. And they can, these companies can say, you don't have to worry at all. You essentially are leasing us the land. You're leasing us the carbon in a way. Is that what Sean was talking about, carbon insetting? So this is where Sean was suggesting that a lot of companies now are interested in, rather than going, they've got a variety of options. They can either buy off the shelf, carbon units from landowners that have proactively gone themselves and planted the land and have these units to sell. Or they can, at the other extreme, buy land themselves, plant the trees and generate these carbon units. Or they can go halfway and there's a, it's a sliding scale as to how what they do with this. 
Well, they can pay landowners to plant trees and generate the carbon or a proportion of the carbon units back to them. They can simply say to landowners that we will pay you annual payments, we'll pay you every five years, we'll pay you in a variety of different ways, whatever works for the landowner, whatever works for the company. And so having these different cash flow models is far more attractive to many farmers and many landowners than a Sitka spruce model of you're not going to really make any decent money until year 35. And that is something that a lot of people can't do. They can't tie their land into forestry production for that long without seeing any returns. And I wonder also how continuous cover forestry might affect that as well, where you are doing selective felling in in small areas and then planting new trees, how that might look like in terms of carbon credits as well as the scheme develops. Sure. Well, with carbon credits, as they currently stand in the UK, we only assign them for new woodland creation. And so if you were to do a selective fell, take out 20% of the trees, for instance, and you, if you wanted to replant rather than letting natural regeneration take its course, then we wouldn't assign any more carbon credits because you've already planted the woodland. Once it's classed as woodland, once it's 400 trees per hectare is how we class a woodland based on 20% canopy cover, that's that's sort of the figures that we use, you can no longer claim carbon credits because again, it's that facilitation mechanism to encourage woodlands to be planted. Listeners, do listen to the New Zealand carbon offsetting podcast as well as this one because um, there are the same themes here, just a different side of the world. There was one thing, Sharon, I wanted to touch on that I mentioned earlier as well, talking about the different factors affecting carbon prices. Now, I've already talked about the different ways that you can essentially monetize your carbon units. You can sell to companies directly. I haven't really touched on this side of things as much, actually. You can sell to companies directly. You can sell to organizations that are carbon traders. And so you essentially sell to this company who will then hold on to those credits and sell them for a, a higher price. And that difference is their profit margin. Or you can sell to you can sell through carbon brokers. So essentially, estate agents. Who, if you are a landowner, it's not necessarily likely that you'll have a myriad of corporate contacts that you can draw upon to say, "Are you interested in buying my carbon units?" You don't want to sell to a carbon trader for whatever reason. You may feel as though you want to go directly to a company, and the way to do that is to pay a commission-based fee, for instance. I'm to an estate agent of carbon who will put you in touch with these investors. So that's another way of going about it. The different factors affecting the price of carbon are enormous. First and foremost, you're looking at location. So if you're close to a city, if you're close to a population center with a lot of different businesses there, they will want to buy carbon from a local scheme. They love the fact that it's tangible, it's local, it's sustainable, they can see it. They can bring their employees out to potentially help plant. They can bring their customers. They can be a university and say every student that comes has to come and plant a tree. You can see quite quickly how if you're an an institution, a business, you'll want to buy locally rather than buying units from further afield. So location is one of the main drivers behind the price. You can really see that as businesses are becoming more alert, not just for commercial reasons, but also in terms of staff well-being, 
their own marketing to actually go to their local carbon offsetted woodland and to see the trees grow and to make that connection, it becomes a lot more meaningful than just a transaction. And there are a variety of different factors as well that are also affecting carbon price, not only just location, but obviously the nature of the scheme. Many companies that use timber in construction love the idea of purchasing carbon units from a commercial scheme because they say it's a it's a closed loop. We're essentially investing in that and then we're using that timber. And that life cycle approach is fantastic, not only for their marketing, but also, as you say, for their general ethos and their vision as a company. Second of all, a lot of people are interested in buying native woodlands or buying carbon units, sorry, from native woodlands. Now, they may, may be organisations that want to have a specific focus on a type of biodiversity or a type of mitigation that may be better. And it doesn't, as I say, wholly centre around carbon in the way that many international schemes might. As another factor, and there are many others, but the final one I'll touch on now is the stage that the scheme is at. I mentioned before about companies wanting to potentially come in with staff, with customers, come themselves and plant the trees and help you planting the trees, maybe slightly redesign the woodland design to match more with their company ethos. The more flexible you can be as a landowner to those aims and objectives of those companies, the better in terms of what carbon price you're going to get. Now, if you want to say, no, I'm sorry, I don't want any public access. I don't want any companies really coming on the land. You can put up a sign saying you helped fund this project. Other than that, I don't really want any interaction. I just want to plant the trees and live my life. Crack on. You're more than happy to do that. You're under no obligation whatsoever to do what these companies may say. However, you are likely to get a lower carbon price because of that. So the more flexible you can be, the higher the price you're likely to get. People can find out about this on the website, which we're going to put a link on on our Tree Lady Talks website to so go there for the show notes. But also, how is it being disseminated to landowners? How do they know about this? It's a very important question. This is primarily the main part of what my role is at the Woodland Carbon Co team. So the moment the, the word about carbon has finally, over the last year or so, as I mentioned before, finally got through to the bigger companies that are looking at wooden creation. Now that naturally is going to encourage when they're speaking to landowners potentially interested in wooden creation, that conversation is coming up time and again. The biggest drivers behind that were the UK's commitment to carbon neutrality by 2050 and the tree planting targets of 30,000 hectares per year. That really drove up the carbon price. On top of that, there's something called the Woodland Carbon Guarantee, which is an English-based scheme only at the moment. And that is essentially a £50 million pot of money from the government where they can guarantee, as the name suggests, landowners an index-linked price for their carbon units. Now, what that means is at each verification over time, they will be provided with, uh, if the landowner chooses to, they can sell their units to the government at an agreed index linked price. That's interesting. That's described in the um, England Tree Action Plan that was launched very recently. There's a section about that there. That's one option. Now, there are only two rounds left at £10 million each. And so if you are interested, I definitely recommend getting involved as quickly as you can. The idea of carbon credits for many people, and I include myself in this, even given where I am in life, um, 
a little bit vague and fuzzy and I kind of kept pushing it away thinking what's that about oh focus on something else but actually I think more and more of us uh, in the general public are beginning to understand something about it and I think that is obviously going to have a knock-on effect I almost see that you are going to be totally overwhelmed Andrew if you're not already <laughs> as this kind of exponentially continues to rise as it already is doing so so have you got plans within Scottish forestry to sort of continue to build up your team? Absolutely and this is where we're talking quite a lot at the moment about what our actual capacity is what sort of role we play in the in the market I've mentioned project developers some of these bigger wooden creating companies and forest management companies they can play a part but they shouldn't be necessarily the only ones advocating the market and providing webinars and seminars to landowners there needs to be some sort of involvement from us marketing material but how far do we go etc etc do we talk to every individual landowner in the uk of course not so it does become quite difficult to know where we draw that line but there are a lot of different things moving forwards at the moment in terms of promoting the woodland carbon code from our side so are all carbon units the same when you generate carbon units through the woodland carbon code you initially generate something called pending issuance units. These are called PIUs. Now, essentially, when you plant trees, I've described the process before about photosynthesis and drawing that carbon down, trees take time to sequester carbon dioxide. And so what we do to facilitate this cash flow of carbon money coming in earlier on in the process is what we say is you have the choice as a landowner to sell some of your carbon units, all of your carbon units earlier rather than as actual woodland carbon units, WCUs, you can sell some of them as these pending issuance units earlier on. So just for instance, if you had a one hectare woodland creation scheme and you were expected through our woodland carbon calculator, which is based on research from Forest Research, which is the government's forest research arm, when you plant that woodland, once you've had it validated, we will assign you, let's say, 500 units for that hectare of woodland. Now, all of those units will be pending issuance units. Once you come to verification at year 5, 15, 25 onwards, what happens is the verifiers, currently the Soil Association and Organic Farms and Growers, will convert a proportion of those 500 pending issuance units into wooden carbon units. So we're in year one, year zero, you'll have 500 pending issuance units and zero wooden carbon units. By the end of the project, let's say year 100, you'd have zero pending issuance units and 500 wooden carbon units. Now the important distinction between the two, for a landowner it doesn't really matter necessarily, but for a company it matters enormously. If I was a company and my carbon emissions were currently 500 tonnes this year of carbon dioxide, and I bought 500 woodland carbon units, those later units, I could say I am carbon neutral this year. If I bought 500 pending issuance units, all I could say is I am working towards carbon neutrality. Now, you can see from their perspective, not only from a marketing and from a general ethos and from a carbon tax potentially moving forward perspective, that difference is enormous and so this is why there's likely to be a trend of carbon prices increasing but I don't want to make if I had a crystal ball and knew exactly what would happen to carbon prices then I'd be in a good position I'm sure but at the moment pending issuance units are assigned up front 
and then they are converted into woodland carbon units over time. The type of carbon credits you can buy vary enormously. You can buy carbon credits internationally, and that can be avoided carbon emissions. And so what that describes is where you've bought carbon units from a solar energy generation scheme in India, let's say. Now, the reason they are generating carbon credits is because previously, before this solar scheme was put into place, they were using a coal-fired power plant for all of their energy needs. And so you paying this solar farm, you're saying that, well, it wouldn't have been economically viable before. My money allows for the solar farm to generate electricity instead. And so we are avoiding those carbon emissions. Therefore, I can become carbon neutral. The second type of unit, which is generally more the wooden creation side, and that's where we work exclusively in the wooden carbon code, are sequestered units. So where you are drawing, as I described earlier, that carbon from the atmosphere, that carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And so you are actively reducing the amount of carbon. Now, avoided units definitely have their place and the avoidance of carbon emissions is hugely important. As I mentioned earlier, carbon emissions are continuing to increase, not only to plateau, but we are increasing the amount of carbon globally we are emitting. And so that avoidance is crucial. However, as a long-term plan, we are going to have to bring some of that carbon out of the atmosphere. And so to do that, sequestered carbon units are necessary. So you can go to a variety of different schemes. Some of these schemes through gold standard, through VCS, they have a variety of different types of schemes. It's not just solar or hydroelectric. There's more efficient cook stoves. There's more, there's better arable practices, et cetera, et cetera, that you can buy from all within this voluntary sphere at the moment. Or you can buy from a scheme like ours, which is government backed and supported and sequester carbon dioxide. And so this is where you've got a variety of options to look at. Just be very careful about what you buy, because historically there have been carbon cowboys out there and the carbon standards have been that the credibility of the carbon standards has been negatively impacted by people saying, oh, we're going to plant some trees in Ethiopia pay us some money and we'll do it. And then five years later, the company realizes that no trees were ever even planted and they've just paid this company tens of thousands of pounds, which again is one of the fantastic benefits of the UK Woodland Carbon Code in the fact that we are only for UK-based emissions and you can go and see the woodland as it's growing without having a huge carbon footprint of having to fly there. You can take a train, go and see your woodland, you can plant your trees yourself, you can see exactly what's going on and you can trust. It's, it's been described to me before in a very similar way to buying a house. It's all about location, location, location. With carbon units, it's credibility, credibility, credibility. And that is what we offer at the Wooden Carbon Code. And that's all we have time for on this week's Tree Lady Talks. Sharon Durdent Hollenby was talking to Andrew Baker of the Woodland Carbon Code. Find out more on Tree Lady Talks dot co dot uk